Sadly, we have not gone to Mars yet. This is Have We Gone to Mars Yet, a podcast about all the things that need to be done before we can put a person on the surface of Mars. For instance, putting a person in space in the first place. We meet the greatest minds within the fields of technology, medicine, astronomy, psychology and physics. We interview entrepreneurs, industrialists and scientists. And astronauts, both professional ones and the private kind. My name is Susanna Levenhaupt. My name is Marcus Pettersson. And this is Have We Gone to Mars Yet? Growing up, Richard Garriott was surrounded by astronauts and people in the space business. For him, space was a natural part of life, and going there was something he counted on doing eventually. But at the age of 11, he was told he couldn't go because his eyesight wasn't perfect. Richard was, of course, devastated, but at the same time, determined not to let this bring him down. Whatever it took, he was going to space. And after overcoming a whole bunch of obstacles, Richard Garriott did finally get to spend a couple of weeks at the ISS. Richard, could you tell us about your time at the ISS? Absolutely. In fact, I'm the 483rd person to have left the Earth. Uh, I happen to be the son of a NASA astronaut. My dad was uh, something like the 36th person to leave the Earth. Uh, And uh, 10 years ago, uh, last October, uh, I launched out of uh, Baikonur in Kazakhstan aboard a Russian Soyuz rocket, Soyuz TMA-13. And I lived up on the International Space Station for two weeks. What did you do there? Well, interestingly, since I paid my own way, in theory, I could do as much or as little as I wanted. In my case, being the son of an astronaut and having built, uh, you know, co-founded the company that, that uh, you know, that took me there. In fact, that's what I'm wearing the jacket of. Uh, uh, you know, I wanted to really make the most of my flight. So I, I both volunteered for, but then also did work for hire, commercial work for hire, uh, to have a very heavy uh, scientific and research uh, manifest during my time in space. Uh, some of the more interesting you know, experiments that I was involved with were things like protein crystal growth, where I was growing protein crystals in space. It turns out uh, it's very hard to grow crystals of proteins because they're complex molecules. Uh, and, but to do it on the ground is, is harder, much harder than doing it in space. And so uh, there's one interesting uh, project I was involved with. And another one was uh, that uh, one of the things that kept me from ever even considering being a NASA astronaut was my eyesight. And uh, because I had bad eyesight as a youngster, and that was disqualifying for being a NASA astronaut. And so uh, 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 that's actually what put me on the road of trying to help commercialize human spaceflight so I could go. Uh, But when NASA found out that I was flying, and I've now since had corrective eye surgery, I'm the first and so far only person who's flown with corrective eye surgery. And so they wanted to study my eyes uh, to see if having a thinned cornea from the surgery would disturb your vision in space when your uh, your interocular eye pressure goes up by about 50% in space. As they wanted to know if that increase in eye pressure would change your visual acuity. Uh, it turns out it does not. 
Uh, and that also has meant that NASA now allows uh, uh, astronaut candidates to have had uh, laser eye surgery. <laughs> so can you tell us more about the preparations? What did you do for two years before you went up to space? Well, for the two years before I flew, um, the first year was mostly medical pre-qualification. Um, I want to make sure that, frankly, you would survive the journey. And so they study your body in great detail. Uh, and if you have anything that is less than perfect, you need to find a way to manage it. And if it can't be managed, you can't fly. And interestingly, during that time, and since we're on, on, on uh, uh, people will be hearing this by voice and not visuals, I'll show you uh, that when they did that detailed scan of my body, they found out that I was missing the vein to drain one lobe of my liver, which on Earth is irrelevant. But in space, if there's a depressurization event, that kind of dead end, blocked up liver lobe could bleed which you could neither detect or repair, and so you would die. And so they actually made me remove it. And so you'll see here I have a nice scar from my sternum to my belly button to the side of my body that was, uh, you know, I had to go under major surgery to remove an entire lobe of my liver just to qualify for space flight. So that's year one. Uh, and then year two is learning all the subsystems on the vehicle. So uh, if you think of putting together a crew to fly in space, there are levels of training that everyone needs on every system. And so, for example, I had to learn how to operate independently everything there would be to interact with on board. And the reason is you don't want to have to go, you know, go to somebody else and say, hey, could you turn on the radio for me? Or, hey, can you operate the toilet for me? Or, hey, can you operate the kitchen for me? You know, with the galley. And, uh, but also, some member of the crew has to be an expert on that system. Meaning if the radios were to fail, one of us, if the three of us were crew members, one of us has to know how to take that radio apart and repair it and put it back together. Otherwise, we can't go. And so professional astronauts all like to train to be experts because that way they can be assigned to any crew. For people like myself, we're not career astronauts. We still had to train to be the user level on literally every system. And, uh, and what's interesting about that is so it's a lot of material to cover, but none of it's that hard. In fact, uh, you know, if, if you can get through high school, you can probably handle all the subsystems on a, on a spacecraft. In fact, in fact, they're quite interesting because um, you know, the, the radio systems are straightforward. If you can operate a ham radio, an amateur radio, if you can get a license, which you can get on the internet now in a week, uh, you can handle the radios on board a spacecraft. And if you can get a scuba diving license, then understand the partial pressures of gases and getting the bends and nitrogen narcosis and a few of these sort of things. Well, that's exactly the same as the life support systems on a spacecraft. So you can do that too. You know, the, the most complex of all was just understanding a little bit about orbital mechanics to understand why you really don't want to manually dock. You know, uh, docking is really hard because as you push to close two vehicles together, you're increasing their velocity, which puts them into a higher orbit. And so you can't just, you can't hang out near another vehicle in space because as you're both orbiting the center of the earth, you will impact that vehicle unexpectedly. And so, uh, uh, you know, just having a basic understanding of that is important, but also not that hard. I mean, it's just high school physics again. And so uh, I found the training to be um, you know, extremely uh, interesting and fulfilling on its own. I had to take it back to your scar because when they told you you had to do this, I guess it came with some risk 
uh, did you have any second thoughts? Did you ever consider not going to space? Uh, it did come with some risk. And in fact, the doctor who performed the procedure, <clears throat> you know, he said to me, my honest advice is don't go. Uh, and he said, as a doctor, the only way I can, it's, it's dangerous enough that the only way I can, in good conscience, perform this dangerous surgery on you is if I consider this a professional necessity. And, you know, I, as he got to know me, he goes, I understand this is something you've been working on for decades, and I'm not going to talk you out of it. And so we'll do it. Uh, but it also came for me after I got another phone call. So the first phone call I got from Russia was, hey, we found this anomaly. You are disqualified from spaceflight. And that was after I had already paid tens of millions of dollars to Russia, which you are not going to get back. How much? Uh, at that point, I was only, uh, so my flight cost 30 million, but I'd probably paid half of that at this moment. And, uh, and so the call was just, you're not going. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And you can imagine what a terrible day that was at at a variety of levels. Not just the money, but I mean, I had already built in. I I had come very close to going to space like three other times in my life already, and so this was the, this was the first time it cost me this much money, and I would, was really thought I was going to go finally, and I was just basically had the worst day of my life being told no. Uh, fortunately, I got another call from my flight medicine doctor just a few hours later saying, Richard, we've developed a plan, but the plan is that on Monday morning, you have to be in Houston and you're going under the knife to have that lobe of your liver removed. And then less than eight weeks after that, you have to go into a centrifuge and prove that you will not bleed out in a high G, nine G uh, centrifuge ride. And I'm like, let's do it. So uh, no question about it. So it's obviously very important for you to, to go to space, but how, how come? Why, why is it important? Well, it's just something, you know, I think, I think every kid fantasizes about it at some point in their life, right? You know, it's like, you know, you want to be a dinosaur hunter or, you know, a policeman or an astronaut. You know, those are common. But, of course, my dad was an astronaut. My neighbors all literally left, right, and over the fence. Neighbors were astronauts. I grew up in a neighborhood where if they weren't an, as if they weren't an astronaut, they were a NASA engineer involved in putting people into space. I kind of grew up just believing everybody goes to space because everybody I knew did go to space. And so when I was told by a NASA doctor at the age of about 11 that you can't go, I had never before that decided I wanted to go. I just assumed everybody did, and therefore I probably would too. And that doctor was basically just saying, you are no longer eligible to be a member of the club that everyone else you know is a member of. Every adult you know is a member of this club, but you can't be when you grow up. And I, I went through sort of like the you know, seven stages of grief where you know, at first you're just profoundly sad and then you're angry. And, um, uh, but, but the way I came out of that was just saying, you know, who is that doctor to be the gatekeeper of space? If I can't go by that one doctor's rules, I'm going to have to go make my own space agency. And of course, you don't do anything about that when you're 11 years old. Uh, but as soon as I was only 19 years old and began making money in the video game industry, as, for, as soon as I had money to invest, I began to invest in space. Uh, were there like one day when you realized that I'm going to make it? What's funny about that is uh, literally all the way up until days before launch, there kept being signs of things that might prevent me from going. 
And I'll mention one of the last ones just to finish that story. So, you know, it really was only the day of launch where I really felt this was going to happen. Because three days prior to launch, I got, uh, uh, I met up with a, a representative of NASA who came to me and said, you know, hey, Richard, you know, six months ago, you signed a Space Act agreement, which everyone who flies in the ISS signs. And it is sort of the agreement that says, you can use the galley or eat some food or you know, run an experiment in this area in return for, you know, we'll provide NASA some data or whatever it is. It's, it's, the, it's the trade agreement between whatever you're doing and whatever NASA owns. Um, and that included me talking to some schools uh, that NASA had arranged through the NASA downlink and things of this nature. And the gentleman that brought me this, this, who came up to me to talk to me, said, you signed the SpaceX agreement six months ago, but NASA had failed to countersign it. And, and so that's okay, though, because now we've signed it. But we also made some changes. I hope you're okay with them. And I'm like, okay, what are the changes? And the changes basically said, um, while you're on the ISS, you will not take any photographs of the interior of the U.S. portion of the, of the ISS. And I'm going that's kind of weird and kind of rude kind of seeming. And I mean, of course, I really want to take pictures there, but okay. Next one was, you won't take any pictures through a U.S. window. And I'm going like, okay, well, maybe they want me to scratch the window. And there's tons of windows, so I don't need to use those windows. So that's kind of weird. Three, you won't do any of the experiments you plan to do inside the U.S. segment. You'll do all those experiments in the Russian segment. And while that could be done, a lot of these experiments were set up by U.S principal investigators to do on the U.S. side. So it's going to be really hard to move them across. And then the last thing, which made all the others irrelevant, was you will not for any reason whatsoever ever enter the U.S. segment of the International Space Station. And I'm like, what in the world is this for? So I went to my crewmates, including the American who was going to be the commander when we were up on board, and I said, what do I do with this? And he was like, Richard, we're, we're leaving in 72 hours. Ignore it. You know, what can they do? And so the guy came back to me the next day and goes, hey, Richard, you know, you haven't signed it. And I'm going like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, by the way, I'm in Baikonur in quarantine. You know, I can't even get my lawyers in the United States to look at it. And uh, uh, so, I, but I basically ignored him another day. So the next day he comes back and he goes, Richard, we're noticed you're not signing this. If you don't sign it, we're going to cancel all this cooperative research that we're doing with you. We're going to cancel all the school outreach, you know, programs. Uh, and we're going to do anything we can to prevent you from flying. And I'm like, oh. so I go to my crew commander and I go, what do I do now? And he points out to me, he says, look, Richard, when we, once we're in space, it's like the rule of the sea. The, the captain makes all the rules. And so I can overrule anything that they say. And so I go back to this NASA representative and I go, do you agree with what my commander tells me? That once we're in space, that we can, he can overrule anything you say? And he goes, yeah, that's the, that's the rule. And I said, will you write it down on this contract? They did. So I signed it. And as soon as we got on the space station, my commander turns to me and goes, Richard, whatever it is you were supposed to do, wherever you were supposed to do it, before any of this happened, go do it. Knock yourself out. And so I had a perfectly good flight. Uh, have we gone to Mars yet? Sadly, we have not gone to Mars yet. But I actually believe that it is now doable within a decade once we decide to go. Uh, my favorite plan to get there it, it, that sideslips some of the politics that I believe are holding it back, especially now that we're, 
everybody on the, seems to be focusing on the moon as the next target again, uh, is to do it like we did the X Prize. You know, if you imagine that it might take us 30 years and you know, $30 billion a year to go to Mars if, if, if any one nation just decided to go do it as a governmental program, imagine this instead. Imagine a government, like the United States government, were to put up a $1 billion or $2 billion prize that said, whoever builds a greenhouse on Mars that sits there and can grow plants automatically for a year or two wins $2 billion. That means you pay zero in advance, and you only pay $2 billion when you actually have an operating greenhouse on Mars. I'll bet a lot of people would compete for that, and it, you only pay on delivery. And similarly, you do another $1 or $2 billion prize for the first person who puts a Wally-type automatic regolith digger that you know might inflate a dome and bury it in regolith and prove that it holds air and keeps out radiation, and uh, put another one or two billion dollar prize for a little machine that fills bottles with uh, oxygen and hydrogen that it pulls out. Do the same thing with water. Do the same thing with anything else you need as infrastructure. Just put a few billion dollars behind prizes, and I believe if you do that, all that infrastructure would end up on Mars pretty darn quick, and then after that we'll have Elon's great new starship for us to all go out, at least go visit for a while, if not stay for a long time. So uh, I'm thinking, what are you doing as a person and companies? What are you doing to go to Mars? Yeah, so, uh, uh, well, first of all, I think it's Elon that's going to take us to Mars. So our, our big bet, in fact, our largest family investment is in SpaceX. So, uh, uh, so anything I can do to help SpaceX, great. And, and so, for example, SpaceX is now starting to look for commercial customers to take to space. So uh, just last week, I was out at SpaceX consulting with their team about you know, how to you know, best operate a commercial space for people who are just going to go in low Earth orbit long before they get to, uh, uh, to uh, Mars. Um, but also as an investor, uh, my wife and I, my wife really is the key investor, but I'm, I, I help. Uh, but we, you know, a lot of the investments we look at are space related. And they're not all focused on Mars, but they, by, by staying active across the board, you know, for, 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 this, for us to have successful trips to Mars, it's not only going to require a SpaceX rocket to get there, but somebody's going to have to build, you know, radiation-hardened places to live. Somebody's going to have to build, uh, you know, greenhouses that can stand, can survive in this radiation area. Somebody's going to have to build, you know, water and fuel sequestration. The list goes on. And so knowing and helping this whole ecosystem rise is going to be what helps us, you know, pull it off in the long run. Uh, but, uh, do you ever, do you think you're going to go back uh, I, I'm confident I'm going to go back. Now, I don't have the same compelling need to do it as soon as possible, uh, since I've now been once. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I spent the vast majority of my wealth to go the first time. Frankly, I couldn't afford to go that way again. Um, but even if I could, I wouldn't, because now I've been once. Now, the next time I go back will be when it's affordable to do it, you know, uh, you know multiple times and hopefully take my family, you know, and... Uh, and I think that day is coming you know, relatively soon, easily within a decade. Um, but, uh, but even if it's a decade out, that's okay. Talk about determination. But Marcus, I'm curious, would you go if you had the chance? Probably not if it meant cutting me up and possibly dying. But once space travel is affordable and comfortable, sure, I'm in. And that's where we're headed, isn't it? Soon enough, you won't have to spend millions of dollars on a ticket or go through years of training. But without stubborn, determined people 
who are willing to risk everything to reach their goals, we would probably still be gazing at the stars, wondering. But once we start populating space with people, space stations and thousands and thousands of satellites, how do we make sure to take good care of it? We certainly don't want to make the same mistakes we did with the oceans. And the pollution of space is an actual threat to our continuing possibilities to use it. In our next episode, Matja Milenovic from Porkchop will tell us about smart ways to build infrastructure in an interplanetary economy. My name is Susanna Levenhaupt. My name is Marcus Pettersson. The music we play is composed by Armin Pendek. Have We Gone to Mars Yet is produced at Beppo by Rundfunk Media in collaboration with Rymdkapital. Read more about them and how you can get involved at havewegonetomarsyet.com. Hallo, Programm mit Judas auf Rundfunk Media.